From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 128, and as the title suggests, this is the next installment of me diving into my Ingmar Bergman cinema box set from Criterion. So this set, I'm, I will be by myself. I will try to maybe find someone to jump in and, and do one of these films with me at some point, but that might be a separate episode. I don't know yet. Uh, this is definitely the biggest beast of all of these curated um Film festivals, I think, is the way Criterion wants you to think of them. There's, If you count both versions of scenes from a marriage, the television and the theatrical, there's 13 uh, films in this this particular set. So it's going to be a, a chug to get through, and I'll try to be economic in how I talk about them. Uh, it includes, as I mentioned, scenes from a marriage, both the, the, the five-hour theatrical uh, television and then as well as the three-hour theatrical Sarabon, <clears throat> uh, Life of the Marionettes, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, The Passion of Anna, Pharaoh Document, Pharaoh Document 1979, uh, and then what's considered the Spider Trilogy, I believe, which is Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, The Silence, and then it wraps up with The Virgin Spring. Uh, some of these I've seen, most of them I haven't. I, I'd say it's probably about half and half. Some of these will be revisits for me. Um, but yeah, we're going to get started first with probably the biggest chunk, which is Scenes from a Marriage, Sarabond. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. I will be right back for that. From that, I suppose, is the more grammatically correct way to explain that. Alright, so I just finished my extremely marathon viewing of Scenes from a Marriage, Sarabond. And this is a really unique project in that it started off with Bergman in a, in a bit of a slump with a few unsuccessful projects in a row. And so he decided, uh, instead of dealing with the frustrations of raising a lot of money for a big film, he would do a television miniseries for $200,000 and shoot it on 16mm. And it started off as a six-part series that followed this couple over the course of, of roughly 10 years through their marriage and subsequent divorce with them losing and rediscovering each other along the way. Bergman had a huge international audience by this point, and so they were desperate to see this this unique piece. But the broadcasters there uh, here over in North America wouldn't pick it up because they didn't want to go to the expense of subtitling and dubbing it the whole thing. So the distributors came to Bergman and begged him to do an edited-down theatrical version. So while the television version came out in 1973, the film comes out in 1975. And then in 2003, he puts out another installment. This time it's called Saraband, And it picks up with them about 30 years later and acts as a bit of a coda of sorts. 
So I watched all of it. I've seen the film version before, as well as Saraband, but I never watched the full-length miniseries. Bergman's not wrestling with God here, which is what he was doing around this time, but now he's, he's answering another of the big questions. How can two people expect to sustain love? It's really a study of intimacy. It's like studying the erosion of marriage slowly, the way you might study the erosion of a rock. And I know that sounds really boring, but it's fascinating here. Uh, we get to see them at their most ideal while dealing with these, these terrible friends at the end of their own marriage. And it sets us up for this epic journey that, that comes between these two, where they, they continue to lose and find each other. And by epic, I mean it's very small and very intimate. But, uh, but it's epic in scope in terms of, of the, what, what Bergman's doing here for the first time. In his career, allegedly the divorce rate in Sweden went up seventy percent the year that this aired. So it's not a great film to watch and try to save your relationship, or maybe even with a new relationship. Apparently, it was very autobiographical to Bergman. He had several failed marriages, and he said it took him three months to write, but a long part of his life to experience. If nothing else, it truly nails how quickly. We can go from tenderness to irritation. The mood reversals and flip-flops that, that come in this, this series, the highs and the lows, it's real and honest and raw and, and beautiful. Liv Ullmond and Erlend Joseph, Josephson, who play the, the couple, Marianne and, and Jonah, are some of the, the main stars of Bergman's ensemble throughout his films. Um, and it's nice to see them with such a large canvas to play on and really build characters that have room to shift and grow and regress and progress over time. The, the real joy is watching Ullman and, and Josephson play together. They're two of the greatest modern actors, and this is just a goldmine of material for them to dive into. There's not a false note, not a moment where they try to protect their characters from who they are. We get them unvarnished and real. And if nothing else, this is a tour de performance of performance that needs to be seen. Uh, I think uh, some people compare this to John Cassavetes' um, Woman Under the Influence. And, I mean, if you love that film, you have got to fucking see this. Because it, it's, Cassavetes and Bergman are very different in what they do and who they are. But you can see uh, the influences uh, here that they have on each other, potentially. Overall, I really liked the, the theatrical version of of uh, of scenes, but I really prefer the television one, having finally seen it. The moments where it allows the story and the characters to breathe make it all the difference, and and it adds a bit of, of more nuance that I hadn't even known was missing from the shortened piece, which is still hour, three hours long. It's not short. Uh, generally speaking, I had a hard time with Saraband when I saw it years ago, when it was the first release, and it hasn't changed much since then for me. I like the beginning and the end, where we get a very Bergman-like moment of Marianne joining Jorah, Jonah in bed, cuddling together again as, they, as only people with their shared history can. It's a nice callback to the end of, of scenes when a nightmare awakes Marianne and he consoles her, and here we get the opposite. The vulnerability of them removing their nightshirts and crawling into bed naked with each other is... I mean, it's, it's worth slugging through the film just to get to that scene. Uh, and that, and that, and then the film is also broken up into these little chapters, and they, and that one's titled after another Bergman film, Hour of the Wolf, which I think is a thing in Sweden, where it's a certain time of the evening where things are going on, and uh, there's magic in the air in the evening, or the middle of the night, I suppose. 
it's quite tempting to really discuss the entire series in full. Um, you know, I could do an entire episode just on that. And, and this centerpiece includes, you know, 13 films in total, as I mentioned. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you my highlights. You know, after attending a, friend, a dinner with friends who bicker the entire time, they discuss that marriage should be a five-year contract with options to renewal, kind of like a mortgage. Uh, it's barbaric to think people can stay together their entire lives, and yet they think that they're the exception to the rule. She asks if it bothers him that he can't sleep with anyone else, and he says he never really thinks about it. And, uh, I mean, I think this is a conversation that couples don't have uh, or try to avoid, and and that's what this this thing does very, very well is it brings up these awkward things that people really should talk about more often than not and how they feel and how they relate to each other because a lot of people don't have conversations until after they get married. Uh, I know some couples that didn't have the kid conversation until it was way too late and now they realize they both want different things. In terms of the episodes themselves, the show really heats up in the third episode where Jonah admits that he's met someone and he's going to leave Marianne. It is an insane and intense sequence of scenes that follow them through that night and into the morning as they go through every emotion possible. She's almost in denial at first, like a deer in headlights. She's offering help and pack, casually trying to discuss trivial things about how they'll handle this and that. Uh, but it just serves to upset him even more, and he gets really, really nasty here. But, but you can see he's doing to try and protect her, to try to make her hate him, I guess. And, and she won't. It's heartbreaking. They fall asleep together, cuddling, holding hands, and that's a beautiful little moment where where in the morning she helps him with a split nail, and it's so simple and mundane, but it speaks to an intimacy. And in the morning they go through the boring life stuff. They cancel the table canceling the dentist, calling the plumber. And when she asks him what she's to tell their daughters that you know, that you're running off on us, and he says, Well, that's that sounds right, and it also has the advantage of being true. And when he leaves, she calls a friend for sympathy and learns that they already knew. And she breaks down, and that betrayal is almost worse for her. The three episodes that follow that one are moments where we see them over the years, and he's back in and out of Sweden. He comes over for dinner, and they both have designs to seduce the other, but they don't. And they do in the following scene, scene five, when they finally sign the divorce papers. There's... I mean, there's so many beautiful moments where they go from one extreme to another in such an honest and organic way. It's, it's again, it's a tour de force of writing, acting, and, and directing that should be studied by anyone who wants to tell a gritty and grounded relationship story. Scene six is the, the final of the, the initial series. It sees them having an affair with each other from their spouses, and we learn that Sarah, in Saraband that this went on for quite some time, and eventually they ended up with them getting back together until he cheats on her again and then splits them up seemingly for good. I'm really glad I took the time to really, really dive into this particular title or titles, I should say, uh, and end its follow-up. I've been meaning to do that for a really long time. It is an investment in time, but it's worth it. And and I will say, I don't love Sarah Band. I think it focuses too much on uh, these other two new characters that aren't in the original series where the strengths of scenes from a marriage was always uh, Liv and Joseph of Erland because they're so magical together. And that's the real reason you want to come back and revisit it. So it's technically a sequel. It's not really. It's a weird, it's a weird sequel. Um, it's not like you're getting uh, another Before Midnight after the last Before Midnight. It would be a bit of a disappointment if that's the case. Uh, oh, that's another great comparison, I guess, is... Um, is uh, Richard Linklater's work. I'm sure he was inspired by by scenes from a marriage. Uh, 
Uh, and then also you've got the Francis Truffaut, uh, Anton Duenel series, which is really, really great. It's a series of films about the same character. And if you haven't seen those, those are worth diving into, too. I really love that series. Um, all right. So now we are on to a double bill. Next up, I believe, is Life of the Marionettes and Hour of the Wolf together. Or maybe Shame's in there. I'm not sure. Uh, stick around. I'll be right back. So we're talking about uh, two films in a double bill now. It is the life from the life of the marionettes and the hour of the wolf. Um, two films that are, are made twelve years apart. Uh, to start off, I think it, I, I wanted to read this quote that's in this uh, this gorgeous um, book that comes with this Criterion set from from Bergman. And I think what's really interesting about this this quote is that uh, it speaks really well to not only these two films, but Bergman's work as a whole. And honestly, it should be something we all think about as filmmakers, whether we're writers or actors or directors. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to read it directly. When a tooth aches, you are constantly touching it with your tongue. If you have a wound, you're constantly aware of it. But it's also the want of having contact. I experience my pictures very much as a want of contact. I seek other people to talk to through my pictures, and there is perhaps... Some kind of idea that if I talk to tell them about my wounds, tensions, and problems, other people might recognize something in that, something of their own, and it might have a, ref- sorry, and it may then have a relieving effect on other people. I think it's terribly important that art exposes humiliation, that art shows how human beings humil- humiliate one another, because humiliation is one of the most ghastly companions of humanity, and our whole system. Our whole social system is based on an enormous extent on humiliations. Man, do I ever connect to this? And I think this is true no matter what kind of film you're making, whether it's it's a drama or a comedy or anything. It's it's finding a deep connection to material and being able to to express that to other people. I know when I made my second film, Sex After Kids. Um, it was, I, I, it's, it's a film about, you know, young parents and, and dealing with that. And I, I, I made it because I hadn't seen any other film about parenthood that really, really tackled it in the way that I understood it, which was that it was fucking hard and it wasn't always great. And you didn't always say the nicest things to other people, especially your partners, mostly your partners. And I really wanted just to show that off so that when people watched it, um, they know that they weren't alone. And, and that is the reaction I got from that film. And so for me, as, you know, I, I have some issues with that film um, because it was earlier on in my, my filmmaking career and I've learned a lot. I've become a much better cinematic storyteller for sure. Uh, but what I really walked away from with that film feeling proud of was that connection I felt to, to audiences that saw the film and that I got to talk to after. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to share that quote with you because it really, really really touched me so i think i'm going to talk about these two films together what we got here are are the stories of men delving into madness how that comes to be and the relationship with the women in their lives uh both films start with us knowing the endings in marionettes we get to see the brutal murder of a prostitute and the rest of the film cuts back and forth between the days leading up to it and the days and weeks following 
And in, in Hour of the Wolf, we learn that a painter has shot his wife, doesn't kill her, uh, and then he's left and took off and we never see, he's never seen again. And also Bergman mentions uh, at the top that it's a, apparently a true story that happened to a friend of his and he constructed the narrative through a, a journal or a diary that was left as well as what his wife had told him. Uh, and I didn't look this up to see if it was true or not, but I'd like to think that it is. Either way, it's fascinating. And if it's a lie, then it makes me think of the way that Cohen said that Fargo is a true story. So both these films are really deconstructions of men who have deep, deep anxieties about masculinity. They might actually be repressed homosexuals. It's, it's not completely clear. Um, but both of them express this, this anxiety and insecurity through violence. Um, both films are experimental. There, there's a lot of parallels to the two films, and even though they're made 12 years apart. And, and Wolf was made first, though it's presented second in this double bill. I can see why they've been grouped together. And Wolf, I, I think we're meant to question if people who live in the castle are real, and as he's delving into this, this stuff in his mind, or if they're just a figment of, of Max von Sydow's deterioration. Uh, Erlen Josephson gets this great creepy role as, as this count that lives in this castle. Uh, I really like the structure of marionettes. Uh, we're seeing both the before and after the crime, with the crime being the first thing we see, and trying to put the pieces together of how how Peter, the, the main character, got to this point. Well, I can't even say the main character, but the murderer, got to this point, and then what people say about it and him afterwards. It's a really fascinating um, study and, and structure, and I had to say, though, uh, by about halfway through, I started to get a little tired and less engaged with uh, from the life of the marionettes. Uh, the problem with such an I- experimental structure is that the film doesn't really ever ground itself in an emotional narrative with any one character, and so you're just left as a spectator watching lots of people come and go, and without a real care of what happens to any of them. Uh, you really are just a fly on the wall, and and you feel like you're just watching these people as opposed to getting connected and attached to them. And the same can't be said for The Hour of the Wolf or Hour of the Wolf. Uh, Liv Ullman plays... Anna or Anna, Max von Sydow's wife, and she's easily one of my favorite, if not probably my favorite, Bergman actors. It's impossible not to care about her when she's on the screen in anything she does. She's just so natural and captivating. Um, and the same goes for, for Max von Sydow, really. And so as a result, uh, you know, Sydow's descent into madness is stronger because we know how it affects her. And she's a character that's shown to be reliant on him throughout the film. But by the end, when he's taken off, I I feel like she's completed this great arc and she's going to be able to stand on her own. And she's stronger and and will be fine now that he's gone. And so, you know, because of that nature, there's there's a real story that goes along with that. And so I just connected to that film on on a deeper level. Uh, you know, the, the cast of, of, of Life of the Marionettes is by no means bad. It's just hard to compare pairing up Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman to anyone else. Um, though the fun connection in from the Life of the Marionettes is that the, the two actors that play the, the murderer and his wife uh, play uh, Liv Ullman and Joseph Erlinson's friends in, I think it's chapter two of Scenes from a Marriage. And so... I, it's not the same couple by any means, I don't think, but it's almost like an alternative universe version of what 
what could have happened uh, to them in that unhappy marriage. So that's kind of fun to think about. I'd seen Hour of the Wolf before many, many, many years ago. I had a box set uh, with a, a bunch of uh, lesser-known Bergman titles. Um, I still like it. I still like that movie. Marionettes I struggled to connect to. I love the simplicity of the narrative in, in Hour of the Wolf. But I really respected the creativity and the ideas behind the structure of marionettes uh, and, 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 and deconstructing it from before and after. Uh, and just in the different stories people tell and, and the lies and the and the things that they take for granted. Uh, it just wasn't successful for me because of the lack of emotional connection. And I'd love to experiment with the, the structure like this one day, but try to keep the characters relatable. I think that was the only downcoming of that film. So next up in, uh, in Centerpiece 1 is another double bill. It is Shame and the Passion of Anna, or Anna. So Shame and the Passion of Anna? Anna? Um, I'm going to talk about these films together, kind of, sort of, um, as the double bill. I watched them uh, not back-to-back. There's a couple of days between. I've seen both these films before. They came in a box set that I had picked up uh, a few years ago. And it's funny, I recall the first time I saw them not thinking much of shame, but really enjoying The Passion of Anna. And this time around, it was sort of the opposite. I mean, I didn't dislike Anna. or I'm going to say Anna. It may be Anna. I'm, whatever. It's interesting because Anna has all the... <laughs> look what I just did. It's interesting because Anna has all the ingredients that I should just love. It's got... Max von Sydow, it's got Liv Ullman, B.B. and Erland, and Sven Nickfuss is shooting. Uh, I mean, Max and Liv are, are in both of these films, and man, they're just a pleasure to watch. I could, I could watch them reading the phone book to me, and just watch them do nothing for five minutes, and it's utterly fascinating. Um, what I also like about Anna is, is the, the gorgeous color. It's weird to see Max with, uh, with red hair. I'm so used to them either in black and white or as an older, older actor with white hair. Uh, shame is far more political than you'd ever really expect Bourbon to get. It sort of begs the question, what would have happened if the Nazis invaded their island at the time and how would Bourbon react to it? Uh, it's, it's a really surprisingly intense film in a different way for him. I mean, his films are always emotionally intense. Shane starts off so simply, the sounds of war surround them, but they, they trudge on with their lives, trying to basically ignore it and not pay attention to it. Uh, it's just something that's happening around them. But eventually it just consumes everyone and everything, and they're forced to flee amidst violence and chaos, and they themselves have become corrupted by it all. It's really powerful and fantastic and, and fascinating that at this point in his career, Bergman's deciding to make some kind of comment on World War II, uh, but also slightly he's, he's saying something about Vietnam that's happening at, around this time. And then and back to Anna, I mean, I love the experimental aspects of it. Uh, the way that he interviews the actors about their characters and throws it into the cut, I could have used more of that. Um, Erland's feels like it comes at a weird place in the movie. His is the last one. Uh, Anna is, it's almost like it's about pure evil in the strangest of ways. It plays like a thriller, but it, it never gives us any satisfaction towards the, the, the tropes of one. You know, there's so another murdering animals in horrific ways. We get no closure from that. Max's character is clouded in a mysterious past that we never quite get the full picture on, too. It, it's, I think it's a fascinating film, even if it's not ultimately successful for me, or at least it wasn't on this revisit. Um, I, I found myself getting a little bored, but 
halfway through. Uh, it really picks up in the second half, though, uh, mostly because there is almost nonstop Liv and Max, and oh man, I could just watch them forever, as I said. Um, it on has this dream at one point that they that he shoots in black and white, and I swear they're just using footage from from the ending of Shame. Uh, also, there's a really cute throwback to the Seventh Seal where Max is in this close-up, and then there's a knock at the door or something, and it pans down to see what he's doing. He's playing chess. Uh, I'm at least taking that as a nod to Seventh Seal. Uh, Bergman himself dismissed both of these as lesser works later on, but they're interesting nonetheless, and it's, it's fascinating that I had different experiences with each of them both times I saw them. Uh, yeah, so those are my thoughts on these two. They're short and sweet. But, uh, but now we're going to move on to the documentary portion of this centerpiece, the Pharaoh document films. All right, so I just finished watching, um, I kept on saying Pharaoh document, but I believe it's pronounced Foria, Fora? I'm going to say it wrong. Let's say, I know it's Fo, R-E-U-H is the pronunciation, so Fora. Let's say Fora. Uh, so, Forward Document and Forward Document 1979. So, for those of you who don't know, Bergman spent a bulk of his life living on this island, the island of Fora. Uh, it's an island just off the southeastern for- corner of Sweden. He discovered it while shooting through a grass darkly there, even though that wasn't the spot he wanted to shoot, and he, and he didn't want to go to this island to even scout it out. But once he ended up there, he just fell so much in love with this place and, and shot a whole whole bunch of stuff there and eventually uh, ended up building a house for him and his then love, Liv Ullman, uh, also, you know, uh, an actor we're familiar with in the Bergman oeuvre of films, uh, for them to live with their child that they had together. Um, and, you know, the island really became a muse for him and many films resulted in, in being shot there. These two documentaries were shot there and he lived there for at least 40 years of his life which is, you know, a long time for anyone to live anywhere. He originally wanted this to be a series of, like, documentary shorts about small mundane things like shearing sheep. However, as he went along, he saw a bigger narrative, something more about the people who lived there than just the island itself or just, like, a history piece. You know, we get to see a little bit of everything from the brutal and simple simple slaughter of sheep to how the mail is delivered you know, we cut from drab black and white to intense color, seemingly for no reason sometimes, other than that's probably just what they had to shoot on as they were shooting loose ends of things, I imagine. Uh, the whole thing feels like it's thrown together from pieces that Bergman and the DP, Sven Nyquist, uh, captured. Bergman apparently did the sound recording himself. So I love the idea of just him and Sven romping around this island and, uh, and making this thing all on their own. Uh, the film, the films are full of this simple slice of life moments, and it really captures a really specific place and time in the world. And if you like stories about real people just going with their lives, then these are, are pretty great little pieces. I have to say they're not the most imba- in- engaging of Bergman's work by far, uh, but they're enjoyable in their simplicity, and they're like a love letter to a place that he called home. And it certainly makes me want to visit there. I can only imagine that most people would love to have a place like this to call home or retreat to or use as a muse and shoot at. Um, I myself have this this wonderful place in, in the country thanks to my wife's family 
and I know how much of a haven it is for me and how much it inspires me. So I could only wish this for every artist to have a, a place like this that they could just really embrace. Oh, messages coming through. Sorry about that. Uh, next up is the Spider Trilogy, or so it's called. Uh, I'm going to group them all together into one discussion, I think, since they're often grouped together that way. Uh, so stick around, and I'll be right back for that. In the late 1950s, although claiming himself to be an agnostic, uh, Bergman really started to explore with religion, or more he was challenging it, I guess. And, and by the early 60s, we have this faith trilogy that he's made, made up of Through Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. Uh, it's interesting, because Bergman con- conceived these as chamber pieces, um, and these films start with asking questions, uh, you know, and really questions around God. You know, what's the importance of God? And, and by the end of the first film, the answer is God is love. And, uh, and then Bergman decides to challenge this even further when he makes Winter's Light by, by starting to question the existence of God at all. And then by the time we get around to the silence, no one's asking the question anymore, uh, and God's almost entirely removed from it. Uh... I gotta be honest here. I think I think like all Bergman films, there's a lot of interesting ideas at play, and there's a lot going on mentally and emotionally. But these films are hard to sit through. They don't have a hell of a lot of story, and it's a lot of watching actors give very subtle and simple performances in very slow ways. Um, I mean, Through Glass Darkly at least opens up with an interesting dinner scene between the four lead characters, and you got Max von Sydow and Gunnar Bergstrand, and you know. It's a solid cast, and they're very engaging and very charming. But then, by the time you get the winter's light or winter light, it opens with this thirteen-minute sequence at a, a church mass that is just giving out communion and finishing the mass. And holy shit, there's no character development, there's no plot. It is dry and boring as fuck. It just really is. I'm sorry. You know it, it, that that whole sequence for what it does for the film and, and, and tells us could have been accomplished in 30 seconds. And it's really frustrating to sit through that. And, and the rest of the film just plods along like it. Which is a shame because that film has such an interesting narrative, probably the most interesting of all of them. Uh, but then th- that plotting and just introspection, the way they do it, continues into the silence. Um... And I don't know, I just, I had a hard time with most of them. I think Winter Light has the most interesting story of all of them. Um, And it's about a priest forced to question his own beliefs following the suicide of one of his congregation. Uh, The guy that he was able to mentor and help. I can see how Paul Schrader's film, The First uh, First Reformed, which came out last year, uh, and you're able to see now, was, was heavily influenced by this trilogy. Seek that out. That's a hell of a film. I really, really love that film. And and I'm glad that this could inspire that. Uh, Because for me, that's a far more compelling narrative than this is. Uh, I mean, Through Glass Darkly is is, is super interesting as well. Uh, You know, you've got the story of a woman unraveling herself, committing incest because of it. You know, there's again, there's a lot of really stark 
harsh things going on here in the 1960s in cinema. You know, there's nothing going on like this in America, that's for sure, that I'm aware of. You know, it just wasn't allowed to be made. The counterculture hasn't come out yet. So, you know, I can't imagine kind of the controversy these films had when they came out. It's, it's impressive with that for, for, for nothing else. But I think as a modern audience, we're not shocked by the things that they were shocked by back then. And so that's not enough to hold our attention throughout. Uh, and, and as such, it's, it's hard for me to recommend these unless you really, really enjoy extremely slow character studies. Um, you know, these films aren't, aren't bad by any means. Bergman's always toying with something fascinating. But they're challenging and they fall into the category of films that feel a bit like homework to me. I'm glad I finally watched these. Uh, I had seen Through a Glass Darkly, but I hadn't gotten around to those two. Um, but I doubt I'm ever going to need to revisit them. You know, they're they're great. They're fine. But, man, they're just... They are challenging, and, uh, and life's a bit too short. <laughs> so now on to the final film of Centerpiece 1, The Virgin Spring. So I just finished The Virgin Spring. Holy shit, that movie is a tutor force. But in like a really small, intimate way. Uh, so here we get Bergman doing a period drama, but in the way that Kurosawa does his period samurai films, there's no flair or showmanship to it. It just happens to take place in the past. He's not trying to show off. Uh, the story he's telling here is, you know, mostly psychological. Uh, it's a couple from a small village. They send their cherished virgin daughter to, to deliver candles to a neighboring church. I assume it's some kind of important custom. Uh, she's chaperoned on the journey by a woman who is unwed, fully pregnant, seemingly the shame of their little community. And en route, they come across these shitty brothers and, uh, and they rape and murder her in a really awful way. And that night, those same brothers are unfortunate enough to seek shelter at the home of her parents. And as they pass through, they they, they realize what they've done. And so the parents have to make a a choice of of how to handle it and what to do with it. It's such a simple, small story, and that's what makes it really, really effective. And yeah, we've seen this this kind of story before. There's no shortage, especially now, of revenge-type films. But this one's totally different and quite possibly one of the earlier of its kind. The story itself, it's a lot cleaner and leaner than typical Bergman at this point. And it makes sense that it's written by someone other than himself. You know, he he gets into the more heady nature of all this kind of stuff. I think if this was a screenplay he had written, we'd get a lot more scenes of them just sitting around brooding, trying to decide what to do. But it's just action. It's like as soon as Max von Sydow learns what happened to his daughter and figures it out. There's no question in his mind what he's going to do. It's really, really great. I mean, the whole cast is utterly phenomenal. Karen, played by uh, Brigitte Peterson. Peterson, maybe? Um, I'm probably pronouncing her last name wrong. She's charming and sweet, but she's a bit of a brat, too. Her flaws are on full display. She's got an amazing counterpoint in, in Geary, the, the unwed pregnant woman. You know, the scene where, where uh, she's played by Gunnel uh, Lindblom, I believe it's pronounced. The scene where Gunnel confesses what she saw uh, the brothers do to, to Karen, and, and she wished for it to happen to her. It's heartbreaking, and it's beautiful. The rape scene itself must have been pretty shocking for the time. It's, it's tame by today's standards, especially if you've seen something like Irreversible. 
But again, Bergman's doing things that he had that no one in the U.S. is even half considering doing in 1960. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be a film buff in the early 60s and having this stuff arrive from across the ocean. It, you know, it's insane compared to what Hollywood is, is churning out at the time. And Bergman isn't even really embraced by his own country while he's actively making these films. His budgets are small. His cast and his crew are, are modest. And, and I think that's part of the charm of these things is he's not... He doesn't. He's not aware of the power of what he's doing. Uh, he's just doing it. Uh, Brigitte Valberg plays uh, Karen's mother, and she is fucking breathtaking. On top of Cedar, she might be the the best part of this movie. Particularly, she has this scene where she's given the clue that lets her know without a doubt that her daughter's dead, and and likely by violent means. And the moment she takes as an actor just letting that sink in and not revealing what she knows, it's just utterly captivating and brilliant and heartbreaking and all the things. This is a masterclass, this scene, in how you make tension and powerful storytelling in a small, small moment. Uh, and of course, Si Dao, he's in top form as the father who has to decide what to do about his... his, his uh, his daughter's death and spoiler alert it's fucking awesome uh it's a great scene there isn't a moment wasted in this film it's lean and mean the imagery throughout imagery throughout is simple and gorgeous he he tears this tree out of the ground which i'm sure was planted there for the movie but it's just this great wide image of this giant tree that max von Sydow has to wrestle the fuck out of the ground and it's amazing and then he beats himself with the leaves of it. I assume that's some kind of ritual or custom. I don't know, but I loved it. Uh, you know, this is one of the earliest collaborations between Sven Nickfist and Bergman, and they're already off to the races visually. You know, it's a fantastic film, and one of my favorites of Bergman in this this centerpiece one. I'm so glad that it ended with this. It ended on such a high where I felt like some of the, the movies in the middle kind of ducked down a little bit for me. You know, I highly recommend this film. The Virgin Spring. Uh, and this brings me to about the halfway point of the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Collection. I, I do really do want to finish this 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 sec, this box set by the end of the year. I got this for Christmas last year. I'll likely stagger the episodes and the release of you guys hearing me go on about them a bit more than that. But my goal is to finish watching them all by the end of, uh, of 2019. Uh, so hopefully you're digging this side series as I dive deep into... Uh, not deep... But as I dive into these Bergman films, thanks for listening to me pontificate about this collection of films by Ingmar Bergman. Thanks for joining us for Bergman Centerpiece One. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.